there's something wrong with the way we've been grading that isn't being talked about nearly enough. On today's show, Dr. Linda Nelson shares about a whole new way of thinking about assessing students' work and making grades mean more. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I am pleased to be welcoming Dr. Linda Nilsson, who is the founding director of the Office of Teaching Effectiveness and Innovation at Clemson University and author of Teaching at Its Best, a research-based resource for college instructors now in its third edition. And in fact, Linda, I understand that's what you're going to be spending your holidays doing. Am I correct? Am I remembering right? You're- yes, I'm going to be working on the fourth edition, oh, you just- which I'm very pleased to announce. And uh, so, yes, that's uh, I always get a lot done over holiday break. That's wonderful. <laughs> and so you've got another book called The Graphic Syllabus and Outcomes Map, Communicating Your Course, and your latest book, Creating Self-Regulated Learners, Strategies to strengthen students' self-awareness and learning skills was released in 2013. And that's actually not your latest book. I am correct, no. right? There's even, there's the whole reason you're on the show today, which is your, is that your latest book is the one you're talking about yes. today? Would you yes. share the title of it? I'll have a link to it in the show notes, by the way, at teachinginhighered.com slash 29. Tell us about your latest book. Okay. The title of it is Specifications Grading, uh, Restoring Rigor, motivating students, and saving faculty time. What's wrong with the way most of us are grading today? Oh, so many things. Let's consider all the stakeholders. Okay, one set of stakeholders are, is the employer, right? Actually, when you, look at, when you do an analysis of the relationship between grades and occupational success, you get a correlation of 0.155, and this was done in a... In a um, uh, sort of like a, a mega-analysis or meta-analysis uh, by, uh, led by a gentleman named Samson. And this is, yeah, it's statistically significant, but it's not much of a relationship. I mean, the grades account for 2.4% of the variance in career success. So it's not really any help to employers. Because employers figure like, well, if I hire somebody with good grades, they ought to be able uh, to... Uh, handle both the technical aspects of the job and the softer skills. But they have been disappointed because a lot of companies have established their own remedial colleges where they train their new hires in basic communication and quantitative skills. This is pitiful. So employers aren't being served. Let's look at the institutions of higher learning themselves. Now, you've got to keep in mind that they have assessment obligations, right? Accreditation and this sort of thing. 
therefore, you would think that getting a college diploma at commencement means that these students are actually competent in all the abilities represented by all the program outcomes, both gen ed and, and the major. <laughs> and we know that's not the case. Let's take communication skills. Every, every two-year, four-year college in the world will make a promise of, oh, yeah, our students know how to speak and write. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> but according to a 2006 study by the American Institutes for Research, fewer than half the students graduating from, from four-year colleges and fewer than three-quarters of those graduating from two-year colleges demonstrate literary proficiency. Oops, what happened there? What do grades mean? You think about it. Okay, somebody gets an A. Well, does that mean that they achieved all the learning outcomes in the course at an exceptionally high level of competency or just at a satisfactory level? What, even more ambiguous, what does a B mean? Did they mm -hmm. get a few of them down? How about a C? How about a D? Does that mean that the students achieved a few outcomes, a few competencies at a high level and others not at all? What does this mean? So institutions have to go through the additional time-consuming steps of assessing learning at the program level and also often at the gen ed level as well, which it's quite a time sink, isn't it? So a passing grade means nothing in terms of what, can the, what is a student able to do. What faculty will do, they simply penalize students who fail to achieve out learning outcomes at the desired level by giving them, the students, a lower grade. Now, let's look at faculty. Okay, the way we grade now bogs faculty down with unnecessarily time-consuming and very unpleasant work burdens. And the biggest single problem is the issue of partial credit. And these days, students will get partial credit if they put anything down that has anything to do with the, let's say, subject of the assignment. Faculty are looking for anything they can to give partial credit to students, and students are depending on that. But what faculty have to do every time they don't give 100% of the credit to an answer, an essay, or what have you, faculty feel obligated to explain to the student why they're not getting full credit. And maybe they feel happy to get any sort of work out of students, and uh, you know, but they definitely feel that they have to explain everything. Boy, does this take time. Rubrics reduce the burden, but they don't get rid of the burden. So faculty are so pressed for time that they can't even conduct appropriate assessments. More and more and more faculty are relying on objective tests, multiple choice, this sort of thing, when you know, even the faculty know in their hearts that they should also be testing uh, students uh, with essay exams or with more written assignments, but they don't have the time. The problem is we've been increasing class sizes. We've been increasing institutional sizes too, but class sizes, while we're not hiring the number of faculty we need to keep the classes at the size that we were used to. So now we've got like 40 students in a writing class and 300 to 500 students and more introductory science class. So it's all a bunch of facts and terms and things that you can test. It almost with a choice test. And of course, the, the 
faculty, they they know it isn't right, but they, they they're there's no choice, and mm-hmm. they're getting more courses to teach in addition to larger courses to teach, and and they are still under research pressures more than ever, still under service pressures more than ever, and students are breathing down their neck for more and more frequent assessments. Tell us about specs grading. What is it and what are some of the benefits we get if we use it? Students are graded pass-fail on individual assignments and tests and also on bundles or modules, I'm going to call them bundles, of individual assignments and tests. And I'll explain those later. But in any case, students earn full credit or no credit, depending on whether their work meets the specifications, the specs, that you laid out for that piece of work. No partial credit. And passing does not mean, you know, getting a C or C minus level. No, no, no. And this is where we restore rigor. You make pass a B-level quality of work. If you want, you can make it A-level quality of work. But whatever it is, you are raising the standards just, just for students to get credit. The key for us, and this is a key ingredient of specs grading, is that we, as instructors, have to provide very clear and very detailed specs and even models when necessary for what constitutes passing, acceptable piece of work. You might think of specs as a one-level rubric, and some assignments might be, the the specs might be as simple as, you know, completeness, like all the questions are answered, all the problems attempted or set up in good faith, the work satisfies the assignment, and other specs are going to be more complex, of course, like a description of the characteristics of a good literature review or the content of each section of a proposal. So you've got to write these specs clearly and carefully, but all the work's up front. For the students, it's all or nothing. It's no sliding by, no blowing off the directions, no betting on partial credit for sloppy last-minute work. Another ingredient is students are allowed at least one opportunity to revise an unacceptable piece of work, or they can start a course with a limited number of, quote, tokens, virtual tokens, that they can exchange to revise a piece of work or drop it or to submit a work, a piece of work late to get an extension, like 24 hours. So there are second chances and some flexibility built into this, but not a lot because they've got to take you seriously. You know, it's one thing to slip up once, especially at the beginning of the course when they don't believe that you are capable of failing them or not giving them any credit, but they've got to get used to that notion. And if you want, you can have you know, give them opportunities to earn tokens or whatever. You can, uh, you know, make a game out of it. You can say the person with the most tokens at the end will get a, I don't know, uh, gift certificate for a pizza, mm-hmm. whatever. How and, does oh, the the other thing is the point system goes away. So that's very important. That's where we get these bundles oh, okay. of tests and assignments. Yes, and you've got to pass this everything in the bundle for them to count. But each bundle is associated with a course grade. And the bundles that earn the higher course grades require the students to demonstrate mastery of more skills or content or more advanced skills, more complex ones, or both. And you can design these bundles such that they, they are providing evidence of students achieving certain outcomes. How does the student then get the feedback? So if I haven't met the expectations, I didn't receive the pass grade, how do I know Mm -hmm. where I need to improve if I do decide to use a token to make that one up? 
since you've made the specs pretty detailed, all you've got to do is highlight what they didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if they still have the chance, they do it. You're getting higher standards out of this. You're reflecting student learning outcomes in the grades. All you have to do is look at the, you know, one section of the syllabus. You are motivating students to learn to, and to excel, to do good work. You are reducing, you're actually reducing student stress because, for, first of all, students can uh, choose their grade. And so, well, I think I'll just go for a C. I, I need only a C. I don't want to do all the work involved in getting a B or an A. Hey, I'm cool with a C. And then we can respect that. That reduces student stress. They're in control of their success. And, of course, we've given them detailed specs on what they're expected to do. And so if they just connect the dots, they will be able to have this assignment or have this test pass. And by passing a test, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that they have to get, let's say, 80% to pass. So all you've got to worry about is whether the student gets 80% on the test. You're not going to have students coming into evening. I want another point. I deserve another point, which is what the point system has bred. All this grade grubbing, all that goes away. Hmm. Yes. Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Having recently experienced that, I I would have liked to have not had that this past semester. Yes, exactly. The point system has become... The, the sort of what, what students will negotiate on because they don't, they don't take our standards seriously. They know everything is negotiable because, frankly, this has worked for them in the past. So mm-hmm. why shouldn't they come to you and try to nickel and dime you to death on another half a point or two, right? And I think so, culturally we're yeah. teaching them to do that because even though yes. I don't do that and it's something I really push back on and say – what you're asking me to do, I just won't do. And it's not fair to the other students, et cetera. And, but they have this attitude of it doesn't hurt to ask. And I think in a lot of cases, they do get rewarded for doing that from other individuals who just have a different perspective on it than I do. But sure, we do kind of culturally build that up. And then it makes those exchanges, I think, that much harder. It's the whole operant yes. conditioning. <laughs> I've been conditioned that this works. Oh, so yeah. These people are crazy. They do it because it's worked. Yes, yes. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a sim- simple little behaviorism. That's all it takes. And I imagine it also worked, you know, in K through 12 and you know, at least some, some stages of K through 12. So, yeah. So everything's negotiable to them. Our professional judgment is negotiable. And you know what? It shouldn't be. You have gotten a lot of criticism about this. This caused some controversy. And what are some of the main concerns that you're getting from faculty? And how do you address them in your own research and work? One of the things I got, and I've had a lot of, of, matter of fact, I got this before I put out the book, so I was able to deal with it. What about first generation and disadvantaged students? What about their confidence level? Maybe they won't have the confidence in themselves to go for the A. And they need very special and I think individual encouragement to do that. We need to show how much we believe in them. Yes, they can do this. All you've got to do is follow directions and make it easier for them to aim high. Some faculty have brought it, well, what about the A students? Aren't they going to slack off? And, you know, I don't think we have to worry about them. Of course, we can and we should praise their work, their good work anyway, and our comments if we want to add comments. But such students are probably going to continue to excel because they are self-motivated and they take pride 
in their coursework. The nice thing about specs grading, it might help them relax a little bit, which might help foster their intrinsic motivation. I don't think we're going to lose them along the way. Oh, I had one complaint once. Tokens are too game-like. And so I said to this, this was in a workshop, so I said to the person, fine, don't use them. Students like games. They respond to these tokens. They want to save them. They want to accumulate them. They look at them as insurance. And so for that matter, it teaches them to defer their gratification and to avoid procrastination. These are wonderful lessons. Here's another one. If we tell students precisely what to do in the specs, then they won't learn how to figure things out and make decisions on their own. That's a big one. They won't learn how to be creative. Yeah, all they'll learn how to do is to follow directions. And then there was also a concern about, and this is related, um, what about long assignments? It won't won't fit with long assignments or, or substantial, like big assignments, major assignments. How much direction you provide depends on the assignment and ultimately your learning outcomes. If you want students to learn how to do something fairly formulaic, you will want to give them pretty detailed and precise instructions. For instance, we we make a lot of formulaic assignments. The five-paragraph essay, a review of the literature, a research proposal, a lab report, a corporate annual report, a press release, certain kinds of speeches, the formulas for these. And in fact, we follow formulas often when we write a teaching philosophy or when we write scientific journal articles. Those are formulaic. They're laid out. The organization's all laid out. Formulas can be pretty sophisticated. Now, other assignments might not be formulaic, but, but... Students still don't know how to do them. Let's take like a reflection. We want students to be sure to answer certain questions, to address certain issues, to be introspective in certain specific ways. And so what we have to do is just list the questions that they have to answer and maybe the approximate number of words we want their answers to be because that tells them level of depth. That's their lingo for depth. Um, and if students honor the number of words, specs, and answer all the questions, hey, they pass. For more creative assignments, you need only give the barest directions. There was a psychology professor who uh, did this, and she had a, an assignment at the end. She was teaching brain and behavior, and she told her students, pick any brain and behavior topic that intrigues you, and then creatively communicate this information about this topic to others in one of many possible modalities. For instance, like a documentary video, and then she put a length that should be 30 minutes, a series of commercials that should total 30 minutes, like public uh, public, uh, service announcements, a collection of pamphlets for a specific audience, a stage debate, educational play, job talk, and she'd give a length. That's all she had to do. She got great products. Another faculty member had her students do a mind map of all the course material as a capstone assignment, and her specs were simply the minimum number of first-level branches and how many branching levels it should be, or minimum number. That's all. And she got precisely what she wanted. Both of these courses were upper division, but they weren't graduate or anything. We were dealing with undergraduates. And so by implication, the size of the assignment just doesn't matter. A couple of more objections. Won't we faculty feel pressured 
to pass any work when the, given that the stakes are so high. And see, this token system works well for us, too. It takes the pressure off of us because we can say, no, this really isn't satisfactory. But the, students, the student has a chance to do it over again. And, you know, within limits, of course. And then here, one more. How could, and this was a real concern, and I thought about this before I published the book. What about accreditation standards? If you're allowing students to choose your outcomes, we've got, you know, students have to meet all these outcomes in order to meet our, uh, our accreditation standards. Well, no problem, because what you do is that you put those outcomes, those essential outcomes, at the C level or even the D level, such that any student who passes the course and gets credit for the course can meet those minimal outcomes for accreditation. Those are the objections that I've heard. It's interesting. Younger faculty are more likely to jump on this than older faculty, and I can certainly, certainly understand why. But younger faculty are saying, hey, I'm going to this right away. I never, they didn't, they don't like traditional grading either. Is there any way that someone could dip their toe into the world of specs grading or is it an all or nothing thing in a given course? I'd imagine you, you kind of have to go all the way with the way it's structured. Well, to get all the benefits, you've got to go all the way. But for some people saying, well, I really like this, the, the pass fail part. However, they don't want to give let go of the point system that's you know like the point system like works against everybody right but we're so emotionally attached to it and so used to it um so they won't do the point system part now you've got that option you know you you can you know, stick with the point system but the problem with that is you won't be able to relate your outcomes um to the grades because, well, because you won't have the, the, the concept of bundles where, uh, that, are, that are clearly uh, related to certain outcomes and, and perhaps not to others. Um, so that's been the, the major objection. Uh, most faculty like the idea of the tokens because they don't, you know, this way you don't have to listen to anybody's excuses. They, you, you know, somebody's late, fine, you take a token out, or you might ask your students to say, uh, to, to tell you in advance that they're going to be late, and so they, you know, you could say, okay, no problem, you have two tokens left, we'll simply subtract a token, and you can say that with a smile. So they understand that there are consequences to their actions. There are costs. There are costs. But you don't have to sit around and listen to excuses. Yeah, I have a similar thing like that when students are late, I... I I take the sign-in sheet away uh-huh, once the, uh-huh. the course starts. And so I it, I did really have to learn to say things with a smile. And what a difference it makes because there's so much less to be, oh, not a problem. Because I allow them to two times during the semester call and leave me a professional voicemail if we were meeting in a business context. I teach in business. So if we were meeting and you were going to be late, you would call your business associate and let them know. And so that yes. and it's teaching them to leave their professional. But, it, but really said with a smile, I think things like that can make such a difference and it can help them learn a little bit to take responsibility and then oh gosh well we've done it more than twice well oh that is going to start to eat into our points we're going to probably have to figure out a way to get here but said with a smile it makes such a difference oh yes and you know what it says about you it says you're cool you're unflappable Mm -hmm. you're not you know all emotionally involved in this and so it really is nothing personal so you're not taking it as anything personal uh because it 
isn't anything personal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it makes you look really good. Yeah. As well as, you know, taking the, taking the sting out of it for the students. Is there any kind of a community that's starting to be built somewhere online where people can share examples of what they're doing or a way that, that someone could see? I know that your book certainly has examples, but is there anything building online? Uh, Robert Talbert's blog, and by the way, his blog appears in the Chronicle of Higher Education every once in a while. So he has a couple of blogs where he talks about specs grading. One is an interview with me, and the other one is where he decided to endorse specs grading and to use it. And so we're all going to be looking at, at that. So that would be one place to be talking about specs grading would be on uh, Talbert's blog. Uh, it's called Casting Out Nines. By the way, he's a uh, um, mathematics professor at Grand Valley State um, and an absolutely superb teacher. I'm eager also to find out how it's going to go in his class, although obviously I based my book on people using the method or parts of the method and having tremendous success. Students read are more motivated. They do like the method. You know, the first time they have it is like, what's that? But you have to explain, of course, the method. You've got to sell it. You've got to, let's say, like tell them that, yes, there is a relationship between your hold or the instructor holding high expectations and their success. One of the things about sex grading is usually students have a choice. They have a choice about the grade. They have a choice about their workload. But there are other places where you can integrate choice. Students love choice. It's a very adult attraction. Pass-fail grading practices, that's what licensing exams are all about. Employment exams, it's pass-fail. You know, you either become a lawyer or you don't. You either pass the NCLEX and become a nurse or you don't. Um, it's real simple. Out in the real world, it's all pass-fail. <laughs> this is the part in the show when we transition over to our recommendations. And for uh -huh. me, I recently did a half-day class and I uh -huh. was loading up all my tools the night before making sure I test everything and get it ready. And I've mentioned before on the show that I use a tool called Poll Everywhere. And yeah. so far I've been using the free version, although there certainly is a time when I, I plan on having the students pay that I think it's $15 a year or something like uh -huh. that and, and doing that. But so far I've been pleased with the free version and it's given me enough of what I need. And they that night I just discovered had come out with some new tools that they have rolled out through all their both their paid and their free plans. And uh -huh. I was one of those things where it was in beta and it said, you know, you could click here to change it. And I thought, oh no, you should never do that when you try a new tool. But I decided yeah. to throw caution to the wind because it said I could set it back if I didn't yes. like my results. So I did. And it's so great because it used to be when you were texting in to poll everywhere, if you were yeah. asking a multiple choice question, the users would have to type in a series of six digits. And that for a lot of us is <laughs> an atrocious short-term memory. So for me, yes. you get one of those numbers wrong and it's not going to work and all of that. Well, they've changed it now where essentially the the person responding to the polls just has to sign on to your session by texting oh, in your special, good. your username to the system and then they know, well, you're in. And then from there on out, if it's a multiple choice question, they just type in the A, B, C, or D, or you can have it one, two, three, or four. You can set that up in advance. And then for the open response questions, they just type their response 
response like they would think that would naturally do. They don't have to type in the six digit number and then type in their response. Mm -hmm. So it just really reduced the amount of time I had to remind students how the tools work. And someone in the class inevitably just had a real problem with the six digit number. And now all of that is gone. Once they're signed on to that session, they're on. Uh It was really innovative and a great upgrade. So if anyone's using Poll Everywhere, I will tell you, it's a great thing to try out the beta. It worked great for me. I didn't have any problems with polls that I had used many times before. So that's my recommendation. And uh, now is your time. What do you want to recommend to to people? Oh, well, this is related to specs grading, but it didn't start with specs grading. Um, You know, when you're trying new things, you've got to be courageous. You've got to have a high amount of courage. So my advice is keep your courage sharp. Keep your courage high. And the way you do that is every once in a while, if not frequently, do things that scare the pants off you. Do things that that really that you're afraid to do. And I've been doing this when I first started you know, teaching public speaking in graduate school. I hated public speaking. So, well, it was time to conquer that. And so public speaking is a scary thing to do when you haven't been teaching a long time. And then, you know, I sort of like really needed to reinforce it. So in the early 90s, I bungee jumped (laughs) (laughs) just to get my courage sharp, just to get it ready for whatever was ahead of me. Several years later, I skydived. And so I'm kind of looking around for something risky to do because <laughs> I do want to to keep that courage ready to go whenever I need it. And so that is my advice. Something like, like trying specs grading does take courage. And, you know, try it. Try it. Nobody's going to get hurt. You're, you know, you're still producing A's, B's, and C's out of your course, so the administration is not going to come down on you. So this is a safe thing. This is within your control, you know, your control within the course. So go ahead and do it. And, you know, when something comes up next time that might be, you know, requiring some courage, you'll have more of it. Thank you so much for coming on to Teaching in Higher Ed and sharing about specs grading with us and all your other expertise. And I just so look forward to having people listen and get engaged at the conversation at teachinginhighered.com slash 29. It's been so nice talking with you. Thank you, Bonnie, for this opportunity. Take care. Linda spoke so eloquently about courage. And just this morning, I had seen this quote from Maya Angelou on courage and wanted to share it with you. I would encourage us to try our best to develop courage. It's the most important of all the virtues, because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. You can be anything erratically, kind, fair, true, generous, all that. But to be the thing time after time, you need courage. We need to develop courage, and we need to develop it in small ways first. Because we wouldn't go and say, I'll pick up this 100-pound weight, without knowing our capacity. So we need to say, oh, I'll start by picking up a five-pound weight, then a 10-pound weight, then a 25-pound, and sooner or later, I'll be able to pick up a 100-pound weight. And I think that's true with courage. You develop a little courage so that if you decide, I will not stay in rooms where women are belittled, I will not stay in company where races, no matter who they are, are belittled, I will not take it. I will not sit around and accept dehumanizing other beings. 
If you decide to do that in small ways and you continue to do it, finally you will realize you've got so much courage. Imagine it. You've got so much courage that people want to be around you. They get a feeling that they will be protected in your company. Again, that was a quote by Maya Angelou. And thanks again to Linda for being on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening today. That was the 29th episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you want to find the notes, they're at teachinginhighered.com slash 29. And as always, I welcome your feedback. Feedback for suggestions for the episodes in 2015. There are going to be a lot of them, and I've already got some booked, but welcome new ideas at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And if you have not already subscribed to the weekly email, it's just going to come in once. It's going to have all the show notes, so you don't have to remember to go grab them as you're listening. And it's also going to have included in that same email, a weekly article about either productivity or teaching. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I just really thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. And perhaps this week you can tell one or two of your colleagues about the show so we can continue to grow the listeners even more. Thanks again for listening.